one of those things that it's kind of traditional, and it's, uh, it's one of those things where you kind of get nervous, too, because you're like, hmm, let's see, timing. And then you're like, well, how close are we to the family? And then there's this special little thing called plus one. Now, some of you get nervous when there's a plus one because you're like, who? My spouse or significant other, a friend? I mean, it just depends. There's a lot of etiquette involved. And etiquette is one of those things that you look at it and you're like, ah, I hope I do the right thing. But today I'd like to talk about an invitation that's a little different, an invitation from God for us to be a part of a wedding ceremony that's a little different, one that is something that all of us look forward to, and it is heaven. But before we start today, I'd like to have a prayer so I can get my mind where it needs to be, because uh, this week it's everywhere. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, as we open the scriptures today, please open not just our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds, Open every bit of us, dear Father, to your Holy Spirit. I pray, dear Father, that you'll give us the ability to see past the things that are going on around us and that we can lift our eyes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The proposal has been given. The pictures have been taken. The engagement has been announced. And the wedding is starting to be planned. As those invitations go out and as people contemplate what they're going to do next, I want you to think of this today as we study the scriptures just a little bit further. Are you invited? It's a serious question. Are you invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Yes. Unequivocally, everyone in the whole world is invited does everybody get an invitation? Yeah, everybody gets an invitation. But not everyone responds to the, to the invitation. So family and friends, as we look today on what would be a good invitation answer, whether a limited number of people or a huge amount of people are going to the wedding, how many of you have ever been to a really small wedding? I mean, like, really small. Usually it was a family member, correct? Correct because otherwise you wouldn't have been there. That's usually how it is, or a really, really close friend. How many of you have been to a huge wedding where you felt like just a drop? I've been to one of those too. It's amazing to see all those different aspects of what a, a, a family might want or not want in an invitation. So in order to look at this from a Christian po uh, point of view and to look at it with our relationship with God, I think we have to go way back to the beginning. So if you would turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And this is what it looks like in Hebrew. Okay? This is what it looks like in Hebrew, and uh, it's important. I'll share with you in a second. And it reads up here, Bereshit, Bahra, Elohim, Et, Hashemayim, Vet, Haaretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now, hidden in this little text up here, and I wish I had a laser pointer. I need to get one of those eventually. But if you look at the chunks of words, they have little spaces between them. There's one over here. There's another one with three letters, and then another one, and then there is a two-letter word there. And this says, and we go right to left, by the way. That's how they read, too. Um, so over here, in the beginning, God, Elohim, is the third word, and then it has this very strange article. It means the or the, but it's done in a way that is not typically spelled this way. It's spelled with an aleph and a tet, which means the first and the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So if you read into this and if you look at it, in the beginning, God created, in the beginning, God, the beginning and end of everything, created the heavens and earth. It leads a little open-minded question to us, did God create everything? Did God create everything on that day? And because of that word right there, the beginning and ending of everything, talking about creation, it's an indication that yes, God in fact created everything, the beginning and the end of everything. There's a lot of people that think that Genesis 1-1 is just kind of a hyperbole. It's just a mm, kind of something that means creation, but it's not really creation. But the two letters there, just two letters, give an indication that God is the beginning and the end of everything, everything that is created. It's an amazing thing to me to see this because a lot of people doubt that God created everything literally on literal seven days. Uh, one of you, and you know who you are, was studying a little bit of this, and if God did not create things in seven literal days, then we would have a real problem because sin would exist before the end of creation. Because if you had thousands of years, you would have death before there's even such a thing as sin. So when you look at the beginning, we see that God created everything, and that's where we start with everything. What happens after God creates everything? Did he just leave it and be like, oh, this is beautiful. This is a wonderful campsite in the stellar universe. I'm going to come back here a lot. This is beautiful. This is wonderful. Did God do that? No. He created more than just the things and the animals. He created Adam and Eve. Just a side note, in Revelation 22, at the end of the book and the last chapter of the book, there's also something very curious that God says too. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There's no mistake to how God writes the Bible, down to the detail. So that's just a side. But let me tell you, this is where it starts with God's relationship with us as human beings, because you and I weren't there. But it says, let us make mankind in our image. And if you read more, and we will, it's interesting that we turn our gaze on the Scriptures and we find out that there is something majestic about this creation and that God wants to do something above and beyond just saying, hey, I want something to exist. So it did. There is something way different about the creation of human beings. So let's go in our Bibles to Genesis 
And I'm going to start with uh, chapter 1, and I'm going to go back to, let's see here, 26. And God said, let us, and it is plural, by the way, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move around the earth. So God created man in his own image. It's a tall order, is it? You and I are created in the image of God. Think about that just for a minute. Of all the creatures in the universe, we are created after the image of God. And He created them male and female. And then He says it backwards, which means a perfect statement. And then He created them man and woman. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in the number and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and on every living creature that moves on the ground. And God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that is fruit on it and seed in it, they will be yours for food, and all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the earth and ground, everything that is has breath in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw, it all, saw all that he had made and said it was very good. When's the last time you heard from God? Very good. Very good. You're in the image of me. I just want you to know, very good. I treasure you. I want you to be a part of my life. God did not have to create human beings, but he did. He did in his likeness, and he did as an identity, as an identity, a sacred inheritance that's granting us dignity, purpose, and the ability to reflect on his attributes. Just as a child bears the resemblance of their parent, we too bear the image of our Heavenly Father. The truth calls for us to live as living testimonies of Jesus Christ Himself because we are, in fact, in the image of God. Parents, like God, we have good plans for our children, do we not? How many of you wish your children nothing but despair and nastiness? I've only met one parent like that and their life was full of despair and nastiness. So it was kind of a self-fulfilling prophet. But no parent really wishes upon their children anything except for goodness. In fact, we can have the worst life possible, but we're like, please, dear God, make my child not see my problems because I want them to have more. I want them to be more. I want them to have everything that you could imagine, dear God, please. God is no different than a parent. In fact, he gives us the ability to see kind of how it was for him to create Adam and Eve, bear the resemblance of them, and then all of a sudden, some person comes in and just kind of yanks the carpet right underneath the feet. Go with me back to that tree of knowledge of good and evil. How many of you would have burned the tree down? I would have chopped that tree down, but God said, don't go near it. And you go, oops, I guess I won't chop the tree down. But we always forget in the story that there were two trees. There was one, the, the one of knowledge and good and evil, and what was the other one? The tree of life. And as humans, we always focus on the problem that Adam and Eve had, and that's that they went to the wrong tree. 
But you see, that's really how it is. You have a choice to make as a child of God. You can go to the tree of life and observe how beautiful and wonderful it is that it gives life, or you can look at the tree of knowledge and good and evil and say, what has God not given me that I want? We always point fingers at Adam and Eve, but you know what? We're kind of the same way too. Through their actions and through our actions, we look at mentoring and we say, eh, God, you don't need to mentor me. I got it. And he says, yes, I do. I need you to be right here and listen to me because I have something wonderful for you. In fact, a lot of times we have our identity wrapped up in everything around us except for the identity of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Our identity is wrapped up in what we do or what we want to become or what we have or what we don't have. But God says, I simply want this from you. I would like a relationship with you so that I may mentor you. And I would just like you to worship me because I love you. When they said, let us make man in our image, he also gave us free will. Free will is wonderful and terrifying at the same time. Parents, you understand what I mean? Free will is wonderful and terrifying at the same time. Well, let's start where we met God, in the garden. After God creates that garden, he puts the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and after this sin thing comes in, something goes horribly wrong, the devil planted doubt in our mind. He created this opposition to God, and he wanted his people, God's people, to think that God was not dependable. You see, he didn't just look at the fruit and say, oh, it's great. I mean, the fruit wasn't the thing that made Eve evil and sinful. It was the choice that she made to pick the fruit and eat it. You see, the claims that were there were that God really doesn't care about you and that he just doesn't want you to have fun and he wants you to, you know, just eat the fruit, it's fine. And look, how many of you... And when a temptation comes, you look at it and go, yeah, it's not that bad. I mean, Pastor Nelson does the same thing. <laughs> it's not that bad. And then the next temptation is, hmm, wonder what it tastes like. <sighs> yeah, that's not that bad. Hey, I'm not dead yet. I think that's what was going through Adam and Eve's mind when they took a bite of whatever it was. I'm not dead yet. But in all reality, they had severed their connection with God, and they didn't even know it, but they were dying. They were dying not only physically, but they were dying relationally because they had disobeyed. And when God showed up in the evening of that garden, what happened? They hid because the relationship had been severed. It had been severed. And you see, the intimacy between God and humans that day was at an all-time low and it was a risk of being wiped out forever. But God already had a plan in place. You see, he had a plan not only that we're created in his image, but that we would feel a pull toward God always. Have you ever had that feeling like there's something not right with you and that everything around you is falling apart, but there's something just nagging at you that you know that it's almost like an itch that needs to be scratched? That's the Holy Spirit whispering, you need one more thing and you just don't know it. And that's a relationship with God. You see, humans without relationships go crazy. 
Let me say it again. Humans without relationships, even if you're an introvert, you go crazy because we need one another. And you think, I don't need anybody. Yes, you do, especially in February. And it's snowing like crazy and you can't get outside a lot. Or if you do, there's not a whole lot of people around. You realize then, huh, I need people. And then you're like, I don't know how to get along with people because I've been hived up over here and I don't even know what I'm doing here. The problem is we need people and God put that in all of us. We need relationships. And the biggest hole that you've ever felt in your life is the relationship that you need with God. And you can fill it with everything else. I mean, everything else. And you'll come to the realization one day that you need God, even if you are a person that is anti-God. You will find one day that you need God. And I know some of you are like, you need to prove, Pastor, that there is a God. Well, we'll go there sometime. Worship is a part of who we are. How many of you have ever looked at the sky at night, away from the city, by the way, How many of you have looked at the sky, laid back on the grass, or put yourself in a hammock and looked up at the sky? You realize that God didn't only create the earth underneath your feet, but he also created the sky. And even in the words in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, even the word sky has a couple words in it. One of them means liquid or clouds, and it means firmament. So when it says heaven, it's not just saying heaven, it's saying all of it, including the stars, including everything that's out there. You see, in Romans 5.8, if you look at that with me really quickly, Romans 5.8, and you've heard this one before, I know you have. But God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet, what? Sinners, Christ died for us. It says basically here that there was a plan in place and he made sure that even if we are opposed to him, there is a way out. So when Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't, boom, you're gone. There was a way out and they told them about the plan of salvation and it started with a lamb. Can you imagine never seeing death before, never seeing anything die before, and all of a sudden you are to take this knife and you are to end the life of an animal, an innocent, I mean, this is horrible. Why would you have me do that, God? Because I want you to know that there's something coming that is great. I will become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. My love for you is unwavering. Even in the fallen state and the brokenness that you have, there's a perfect design that says you need me. See, the Son of God, when he came to die and was resurrected, declared basically at that time, declared, I have a plan. So when Adam and Eve fell, there is something that I want you to pay attention to this morning. Even if you miss everything else, pay attention to this. When Adam and Eve died, there was a plan in place already, and there was a new covenant set in place, and that new covenant was that the Lamb of God is coming to take away the sins of the world. If the new covenant was not established right there in the Garden of Eden after they sinned, every one of us would have been doomed. The plan is there. So when people tell you about the New Covenant and the New Testament, no, 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 no. New Testament is 
repeating what the Old Testament was saying, that the new covenant, because of sin, is in place already. Don't worry, the Lamb of God is Jesus Christ. You see, redemption, the only way we can have redemption is through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and was resurrection. But as children of the Creator, we're not defined by our failures. Do I have to say that again? We as children of God are not defined by our failures. We are defined by who our God is, who our parent is, and what He has planned for us and what we will become. No parent I know decides that they're going to just tell their child they're nothing and they're worthless. does happen, by the way. And if you have had that, I'm sorry. That's a horrible way to be brought up, and I know. Some of you have felt that. But God does not want you to stay there. He wants you to know that you have a valuable, valuable life and that He wants you to know that you are a child of His. And in reality, in concept, in all kinds of ways, He needs to tell you that He is coming back and He wants you to know that anything you can accomplish, you can. Just ask Him and He will pour blessings from heaven. Now, pastor, that means that only wonderful things will happen, right? <laughs> I wish. I wish that the world was not uh, full of bumps and bruises and sometimes a blow to your face or, you know, things like that. I, I wish. Does anybody recognize this picture? If you're a miner, um, this picture kind of blares in your mind. And a few years ago, there was a, uh, a cave-in where a number of men spent 68 days below because of a cave-in. By the way, Adra was there. They were there. They were trying to take care of the families, and I think even one of the families was a Seventh-day Adventist family. But I digress. <laughs> it was an, or, un, uh, an ordeal that was unprecedented. It, it, the international audience was huge. The struggle of 33 Chilean miners who survived two months underground in a copper mine. I, th uh, I can't pronounce the name. I... Copapio or something like that in Chile. August 2010. Rescue workers went down and they found out that they could not reach them. What would you feel like if you were those men down there and they said, nah, they can't reach us? They tried all kinds of things. The rescue workers were trying to make sure that they were taken care of. Meanwhile, the men were stuck behind 770,000 tons of rock as their families waited breathlessly, many in tent camps on the surface for word that they had survived. As the miners huddled in a room that they called the refuge, they were able to communicate with the outside world through a borehole dug by rescue crews. The trapped men communicated briefly with their families through the hole and were advised by NASA in, with information on medicine nutrition, and psychological effects of spending too much time underneath the surface. After a lengthy drill process, the rescue team itself, the rescue itself began, and th of all 33 of the men that were pulled to safely, safety, years later, the miners that are rescued still face a little bit of emotional demons. I imagine none of them liked small, bitty places. But the rescue plan was there, they survived, and as we know, each one of them were brought up one by one. 
Can you imagine being one of those miners? Can you imagine being one that has no hope and all of a sudden there's just a little bit of hope? And not just a little bit of hope, all of a sudden you find out that there's a vehicle coming down for you. And then you see the vehicle. And then you're in the vehicle. And then you're being towed up to the top. Now that's where it would have got me because that thing was really tiny. I'd be like, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Don't do it too loud. It might be a cave-in. Praise God from whom all. I hate tidy spots. I hate little spots where you're like smushed into something. But to endure just for that little bit, it would have been well worth it because when they got to the top, can you imagine what it was like to all of a sudden the fresh air and your family? Can you imagine? Salvation is kind of like that. Salvation is kind of like being trapped in a way that you cannot fathom. But God sends a vehicle, and God sends something that is really available. We've been rescued, but you know what? God also compares this life that we have to being adopted. If you turn in your Bibles with me to Galatians, chapter 4. I know some of you are adopted. I have relatives that are adopted. And that is a wonderful process. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 through 7. But when the time had come fully, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might be received the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who called out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also heirs. And ladies, I don't want you to feel left out. This is an all-inclusive word. It means sonship or family. And when you're adopted, it's wonderful to know that the love that is extruding or being rained down upon you from this family, it's forever. And it's a little different. I've explained this before back in the time that you could actually, as a homeowner or a business owner, reject your own children and adopt the person that is the... Uh, the uh, maintenance person, you could take their child and make them the one that inherits everything from you. Um, it was quite a different society than we live in. I know our society is kind of going back that way, but it was a society where they didn't really value as much uh, human life. But in this case, it was very unusual because they could be adopted and take on everything that the family um, was going to give them. So you could be a stable boy, and the next thing you know, you inherited everything or a stable girl, and you would inherit everything. Wouldn't that be amazing? All of a sudden, one day, you're lowest of low, and the next day, you're like, a <laughs> king! Oh, wow! <laughs> but adopted by God is something a little different. It's redemptive. It's, we know we're forgiven, but it says that we're adopted into the family. The Spirit of God testifies of the Spirit that the children are, in fact, His children, enabling us to cry out, Abba, Father, our adoption seals our identity, assuring us that the eternal inheritance we have is an unbreakable bond with Jesus Christ and with the Heavenly Father. 
Our identity in the Bible is always wrapped up in who we are as in Jesus. If your identity is wrapped up in anything else, I will say it again, then you're in trouble because your identity can be destroyed. In this way, you cannot be because the God of the universe who is eternal and who created everything says that you're my child. That is forever. You can choose no. I mean, I know many that have been adopted that choose to have the feelings that, oh, I was rejected by somebody and they're angry at life and things like that and not focusing on the fact that there is a family that loves you more than you can ever imagine. But I know that when God adopts us and makes us heirs of his kingdom, it is a wonderful place to be. The Bible talks about this adoption to become inheritors of God's legacy. We are gifted with the words of the vineyardman that says, I have grafted you on and now you are part of me. There were three sons that were adopted by a family. And um, they have three different stories, of course, so I'm just going to share one. And uh, they take, this is, uh, this is off of, um, I need to go to the bottom here. I think it's adoption.org. And this talks about how a family was deciding to uh, try and adopt someone, and they went the traditional route. After they submitted the paperwork, they completed their background checks and endeavored interviews passed their home study and paid an initial fee. They were approved for adoption. The chance of being matched with an expectant mother was better if they told um, everyone they knew that uh, they were hoping for adoption. Uh, In our family's uh, case, in um, my aunt and uncle, they happened to do the same thing where they announced everybody and family and friends and all of a sudden somebody came up to them privately. And um, I know that my cousin was adopted I remember that day well because I was there. Our Christmas cards and other things in the year with the pictures usually include a new face that year. And uh, this, this agency also puts that up and they, they advertise that well. But after a year of being approved for adoption because it doesn't happen overnight, my aunt called me to tell me that she knew someone that was pregnant and she had told this woman's mother about us and gave the information. Because of their contacts and... Um, It didn't pan out, and we were cautiously optimistic that something would happen in the future, and it did. A few days later, they received an email that would change their lives forever. It was from an expectant parent that knew the aunt. She told us about her situation, the range of emotions she'd felt since finding out that she was pregnant. The person wrote that she had decided to place her baby up for adoption and was hoping we would consider adopting him. My husband and I immediately hugged and jumped for joy. Our relationship with the, uh, the individual grew and we felt close to her, but there were some concerns about the ex-boyfriend. The ex-boyfriend had different thoughts about adoption and was persuaded by his family to change the mind of the young lady. When the baby was born, we flew several states away and arrived at the hospital hours later. The next day, we went to the hospital again and the person arrived to meet uh, his son. He had started to turn his heart toward um, adoption, but... What sealed it was meeting and developing a relationship with us. The hospital staff allowed us to go into another room with the young man and the baby. He lovingly held his son and asked us questions about our lives and how we would raise his son. Over the next several days, he grew to love the young man and built a relationship of trust. It was more than we could have expected. When we signed the adoption papers four days after the baby was born, 
Both birth parents knew they were making the right decision. We embraced them and expressed our love for them. The caseworker commented to us, I did not know how this adoption was going to work out, but you helped change his heart. The open adoption we have enjoyed for 10 years has been a beautiful journey. Can you imagine what it's like for God to adopt us? Can you imagine what it's like for God to adopt us? It says over one sinner that repents that the angels of heaven do what? Rejoice. Can you imagine what God does if the angels are rejoicing? We always say, oh, God is stoic, and he's up there going, oh, bravo. No, 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 no. God's up there going, yes! <laughs> and maybe even doing a little dance, I don't know. But you know what? We have all been adopted. God's adoption is so much different, but at the same time, the same. After he adopts us, what does the relationship look like with God? It is a life-changing existence we have. We don't hold on to the I've been rejected, but we hold on to the I've been adopted, I've been grafted. I have been adopted, loved, given an inheritance. If we are all to live a life of happiness and being fulfilled in ourselves, being fulfilled, um, it's not in ourselves, it is in the adoption of God. Basking in his love and letting him in, because really that's what relationships are really about, is letting God in. The last point today, we all wait in anticipation for God's return. Because if God was the one that wants us to be a part of this, then we wait in anticipation. I'm going to go back to the motif of the wedding. The anticipation is usually more stressful for the bride and the bride's family than the groom's family. Let's face it, right? The anticipation is because there's planning that has to be done. Nowadays, a lot of the planning is done by both. But the planning has to be done, and then you have to find out who you're going to invite, and you have to find out what kind of food you're going to have, what kind of dress, what kind of cake, what kind of hors d'oeuvres. I mean, the list goes on and on. Some of you are like, it's Sabbath, please don't make me work. <laughs> but the anticipation sometimes is way more grandiose or even troubling than the wedding itself. See, Revelation chapter 21, if you would turn in your Bibles with me to that again, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3, this is right after the new Jerusalem came down prepared as a bride for her husband, and it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, no more crying, no more pain. The old things have passed away. The final chapter is not a, oh, it's terrible. The final chapter is a dwelling of us with God. The pain, the sorrow, the tears, no matter what has been there, no matter what kind of heartache, God says the anticipation is over. Have any of you heard of Bridezilla? That's caused by anticipation, by the way. That's not caused by the event. You see, when, when the wedding is planned for, it's planned to be the most beautiful, wonderful thing because it is a type, anti-type with what is going to happen in the future with us and God. That's the significance of wedding is that it is a little picture of what it's going to be like when God comes to get us. 
Revelation 22, the last chapter, verse 6 through 17. And God said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, he has sent his angels to show his servants that must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw all these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. You see, it's all about worship. God said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for this time is near. Let the evildoer still do what's evil, and the filthy be filthy, and the righteous still do what's right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one according to what they have done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, and the first and last. Blessed are those who wash their robes so when, that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexual immorality and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. But I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the church. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty, thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. You see, the world around you wants you to believe that all those things, they're okay. You can do whatever you want. You shouldn't be judged. God doesn't judge you for them. God tells you that it's inappropriate. Don't do it. And the judging happens after you do it. When we take the things that the Bible says not to do and make them commonplace, we're basically telling God, thanks for the adoption, but no thanks. I want to do my own thing. The Bible is very, very specific and clear about the relationship we have with one another, and it is multi-generational. The warnings and the things that are good are all there for our benefit. How many of you would not tell your child, don't touch the hot stove? I know it looks pretty, but don't touch it. How many of you would just go, okay, and take their hand and fry it right on there? No, we wouldn't do that. That's what God is trying to do to us. He's trying to give us warnings and saying, you know, that's not healthy for you. It's something that I didn't create you for. I want you to make sure that you avoid those things because those things are going to destroy you eventually. But I like them. Yeah, I know. Most of us do, but they're not good for you. Matthew 25, 1 to 13, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. The foolish took their lamps but had no oil, and you know the story. The other ones took extra oil with them. And when the bridegroom said, It's time! They all just trimmed their wicks, and the ones with oil went, and the other ones were like, I have no oil. Can you imagine what it would be like to meet God and not allow the Holy Spirit to affect our lives? What would it be like if the Holy Spirit was just ignored all the time? And anytime we feel uncomfortable because we like the things that we do, um, we say, Holy Spirit, take a back seat. Today, the invitation is to be identified as the wedding party participant. In fact, I will propose to you that you are actually on the list of the plus ones, that you are God's plus one because it's a very 
very small wedding, but it's going to be huge too. And God wants you to know that you are invited, so He puts you on the plus one list. What will you do knowing that you are created in God's image? What will you do knowing that you have been rescued? What will you do knowing that you have been adopted? What will you check on the list? Will you check, I'm coming? Or you say, ah, I'll sit this one out. What will you do now that you know that you are God's plus one?